These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Imagine growing up very poor in Ireland in the 1890s. Looking for a better life, you immigrate to the United States as a teenager. You fight and struggle to overcome cultural stereotypes and prejudices to make a life for yourself. By the time you are 30, you've become a successful cook that is being employed by some of the wealthiest families in New York. One day, a man you have never met before accuses you of making the people you prepare meals for sick. So sick, a few have died. Before you know it, you find yourself living in a small home on an island, isolated from the rest of the world, and you are there for years. Today I have the story of a woman named Mary Mellon, better known to the world as Typhoid Mary, on the 197th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff. For the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic I would like to know more about it, and I attempt to put it in story form, hopefully one you find entertaining. So this is week, what, four or five? Uh, I'm not even sure anymore. Last weekend, I took my dog for a walk, and it was surprising how many people whom I'd never talked to before, suddenly wanted to engage in conversation while keeping a good distance between us. Someday I hope this self-isolation will end, right? I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're healthy and all that stuff. So the producer of today's show is Betsy Batter. Betsy generously contributed to my Patreon account. Betsy, thank you so much. You know, I, I truly can't express how surprising and, and, and overjoyed I am when people like Betsy donate to my account. It's starting to look like I might be able to do this for a long time to come. So I thank you. So considering what's going on these days with COVID-19 and such, I thought a story of Typhoid Mary would be a good tale to tell. Now, I've had this story on my list since I started doing this podcast five and a half, six years ago, whenever that was. I resisted because this is one of those stories that so many other podcasts have done. In fact, Radiolab did a fantastic show on Mary. But now seemed like a good time for me to put my spin on the tale. And I just didn't do this because it's timely, but also because I've been very busy lately. You see, although I'm working from home these days, I work for an educational toy company. And since the schools are closed, the company I work for has dedicated itself to providing free printables and videos so parents can keep their kids' education going. This has kept us all very busy. So considering the fact I knew I would be able to find a lot of information on Typhoid Mary, it seemed like a good one to do now because it wouldn't require a lot of digging, you know. Well, I think that's enough of my yakking. Why don't we get to the story? The story of a young woman who was given a name that she really hated. I have a house in Oyster Bay. I ran it out, or at least I tried to. Go on. The daughter of the last family, she became ill <coughs> with typhoid. Five more of the household were struck down by luck. None died. But now everyone fears my property is infected. I am ruined. <laughs> 
Unless, Dr. Soper, you can find the cause. 27-year-old George Soper had been born and raised in New York City. He was a confident and ambitious man who had attended the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and Columbia University for Sanitary Engineering. Soper was the type of a person that, once he got involved with a problem, wasn't going to stop until the problem was solved. He had already made a name for himself investigating and solving a typhoid fever outbreak in Ithaca, New York. Oyster Bay, New York, was an exclusive seaside community where the rich and influential would often come and spend their summer. George Thompson, an owner of one of the large estates, would rent his home out during the summer months. In the tourist season of 1906, it looked like the property might go unrented. The house had a dark cloud hanging over it, and that cloud was called typhoid fever. The summer before, the previous tenants, Charles Henry Warren, a wealthy New York banker, his family and servants, stayed at the property. Six of the 11 people in the home had been stricken with the terrible disease. Typhoid fever is a bacterial infection due to a specific type of salmonella called salmonella typhi. It's extremely contagious. Symptoms vary from mild to severe and usually begin 6 to 30 days after exposure. It commonly starts with a high fever, followed by weakness, abdominal pain, constipation, headaches, and mild vomiting. Some people develop a skin rash with rose-colored spots. In severe cases, people may experience confusion. Untreated, it can last for weeks or even months. In the early 20th century, 9-13% to of the people infected died. There was no cure for typhoid at the time. Treating the symptoms, not the illness, was the best doctors could do. In 1906, 3,467 people were reported as dying of the illness. The actual number was probably a lot higher as not all cases were reported. The thing is, the disease was considered a condition of the slums, common in the crowded streets of urban New York. Most thought it was something that only affected the poor and the dirty, not those in wealthy areas like Oyster Bay. Experts had already been called in. They looked in all the usual places. Was the sewer contaminating the drinking water? Was the shellfish tainted? Or maybe it was bad dairy? They could find nothing. Yet George Thompson wanted answers. He had heard of a man who had success in such cases, George Soper. He hired Soper to figure this out. And once Soper was on the case, he wasn't going to quit until the cause of the infection was known. Soper started by examining the details of the previous investigation. One thing he figured out was it wasn't transmitted from one member of the household to another. Each member, he reasoned, contracted it from the same source. Now what was one thing all these people had contact with that could have given them typhoid? Just like the experts before him, he found that all the usual sources were not the cause, so he began to look at the people in the home. He learned that just three weeks before the first member, the youngest daughter, had come down with the fever, the family had hired a new cook. And it just so happens that it takes about three weeks after being exposed before symptoms would begin to show. She had only been with the family for a short time and she had already moved on. Now the easiest way to transmit the disease from one person to another was from the hands. It gets on the hands after going to the bathroom. 
Even washing the hands in most cases wouldn't completely prevent the disease because it takes a hard, vigorous scrubbing, even under the nails, to get it all off. Now, the bacteria doesn't survive in cooked food, but this cook had a Sunday specialty. It was a dessert that everyone in the household looked forward to. Homemade ice cream with fresh-cut peaches. The cook seemed like the likely cause. The problem was she was gone and George didn't know where to find her. He was, however, able to track her previous places of employment and discovered something shocking. Of the last eight homes she had worked at, six had come down with typhoid. There had been 22 cases of typhoid in the homes where she had been a cook. He eventually tracked her down. She was working for another family in a Park Avenue home in Manhattan. The home had already had two cases of typhoid since she arrived, including the homeowner's daughter, who had died. Her name was Mary Mellon, and she was perfectly healthy. Sober described her in his writings as an Irish woman about 40 years of age, intelligent, tall, heavy, single, and non-communitive, who seemed to be in perfect health. As far as he could tell, she had never had an attack of typhoid. His first encounter with her didn't go well. Sober couldn't get any information of value from her as she refused to speak about herself or her history. He attempted to explain to Mary that he thought she was spreading the disease and he needed a sample of her feces, urine, and blood for testing. Now, it might have been George's cold, direct approach that caused Mary to become furious. How dare he accuse her of something like this? She threw him out of the house. In fact, Sober claimed that Mary had come at him with a kitchen knife. The completely healthy cook thought the idea was absurd. After all, who had ever heard of a healthy carrier? Sober was taken back by Mary. He expected someone who would be glad to help to try to solve the mystery, to help protect those around her. Wouldn't she want to know why the sickness followed her wherever she went? But it was not so. Mary refused to help. He wondered if this was because she thought he was accusing her of something terrible. After all, a young girl had just died, and he was basically saying it was her fault. He later wrote, My point of view was not acceptable, and the claims of science and humanity were unavailing. I never felt more helpless. On a second meeting with Mary, he brought along Dr. Habler. They attempted to use as much tact as possible in describing their suspicions that Mary was the source of the infection, and again they requested small samples of urine, feces, and blood, and again Mary refused. Soper wrote, Mary's attitude towards us at this point could in no sense be interpreted as cordial. We were glad to close the interview and get down to the streets. We concluded that it would be hopeless to try again. Sober took his findings to Dr. Herman M. Briggs, medical officer of health in the New York City Department of Health. He laid out the facts. In March 1907, it was determined that specimens would be needed. They hoped to get them peacefully, but one way or another, they would get them. If necessary, they would take Mary into custody. They sent Dr. S. Joseph Baker to Mary's door. Mary slammed the door in her face. The following morning, Baker returned with an ambulance and a group of policemen. Two policemen waited outside in case she attempted to escape. The doctor, with the rest of the officers, went to Mary's door. This time, when Mary tried to slam it, 
An officer used his foot to keep it from closing. Mary ran into the kitchen. Baker and the policeman quickly followed. But in the kitchen, Mary was nowhere to be found. They searched the cellar, coal bins and closets without success. Looking out a rear window, the doctor noticed footprints in the snow-covered ground leading to a chair next to a high fence that separated this home from the next. A search of the next home, however, didn't find Mary either. It had been more than three hours, and they were thinking about giving up when an officer noticed an outside closet door. Inside, they found Mary hiding. Baker later explained, She fought and struggled and cursed. I tried to explain to her that I only wanted the specimens and that then she could go back home. She again refused. And I told the policeman to pick her up and put her into the ambulance. This we did, and the ride down to the hospital was quite a wild one. In March 1907, Mary Mellon, with the help of the police, was taken into custody and placed in charge of Dr. Robert J. Wilson, superintendent of the Department of Hospitals, and Dr. William H. Parks, chief of the research laboratory in the Department of Health. Dr. M. Goodwin did the bacterial work under Dr. Parks' direction. George Soper attempted to interview Mary one last time. He explained that he wanted to know if she ever had an attack of typhoid, because this information could help a lot of people. He also wanted her to know that nobody was accusing her of deliberately intending harm, and, if possible, they would try to free her of her disease-producing capacity. Mary wasn't having any of it. She refused to talk and ended up locking herself in the bathroom until Sober left. Now, from Mary's point of view, she was a 37-year-old healthy cook. She wasn't sick with typhoid. Suddenly, she was being accused and arrested for making others sick. She had worked hard to build an honest, good life for herself, and now she was being treated like a criminal. Mary Mellon was born in Ireland in 1869. In 1883, as a teenager, all by herself, she immigrated to the United States. After living with an aunt and an uncle for a while, until they died, Mary began making her way in the world. She was eventually able to become a domestic servant in the homes of New York City's elite. The journey from growing up poor in Ireland, surviving on nothing but potatoes, to becoming a well-respected household servant had been a difficult one, and it made Mary very tough. This was at a time when the Irish were associated with every imaginable negative stereotype. Irish Americans were portrayed as drunk, stupid, and dirty, yet Mary battled this all by herself. And now she was being told that she was bringing sickness and death to the very people she was working for. Her urine, feces, and blood were examined, and they were found that her feces contained a pure culture of salmonella typhi, the cause of typhoid fever. Three times a week she was examined, and only in a few cases were samples not found. Mary was identified as an asymptomatic carrier of the disease, the first ever to be discovered in America. These people were unaffected, yet can transmit the disease to others, and perhaps the worst job for a carrier to have was a cook. Mary became a prisoner of the Department of Health at North Border Island, quarantined in a small house on the grounds at Riverside Hospital. She was all alone. It was suggested to her that the removal of the gallbladder might help. That's where doctors believed the bacteria resided. Mary refused. She did not believe she was responsible for spreading the disease. 
Many attempts were made to treat her, but none were successful. And for the record, removing the gallbladder would not have helped. Mary was furious, upset, confused, and humiliated. She wrote in a letter, When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble. My eyes began to twitch, and my left eyelid became paralyzed and would not move. It remained in that condition for six months. There was an eye specialist who visited the island three or four times a week. He was never asked to visit me. I did not even get a cover for my eye. I had to hold my hand on it while going about and at night tie a bandage on it. While on the island, she wrote letters to various people pleading for her freedom. Why should I be banished like a leper, she wrote. I'm compelled to live in solitary confinement. After a few years of this life, I'll be insane. She began taking her own stool samples and sending them to her lawyer so he could have them independently examined. In 1909, Mary attempted to sue the health department on the grounds that she was being deprived of her liberty without ever having committed a crime or knowingly have done injury to any person. And she was being held without being given a hearing, apparently under a life sentence. It was argued that this was contrary to the Constitution of the United States. The case made its way to the New York Supreme Court, where the courts concluded that the Department of Health acted within its rights as they were serving the public interest. By now, her case had become a big news story. Some newspapers telling the tale of this unfortunate woman who was being kept a prisoner. They included illustrations of a sad woman living alone on an island. At the same time, other papers pictured Mary as feeding deadly meals to unsuspecting families. It was around 1908 that the Journal of the American Medical Association referred to her as Typhoid Mary, a name that would stick to her for the rest of her life. She began to see herself as the butt of jokes and cartoons. In a handwritten letter to her lawyer, Mary complained, I've been, in fact, in a peep show for everybody. Even the interns have come to me and asked me about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. She wrote that, Dr. Parks has me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put into the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. By now there were a lot of people on Mary's side. The public had grown sympathetic for this woman who was being kept a prisoner. Perhaps it was the pressure from the public that caused the new health commissioner, Eugene H. Porter, in 1910 to agree to release her. The conditions of the release were that she would agree not to work around food or be involved in food in any way, and that she would report every so often and let the state know what she was doing. Mary agreed, so after three years of being a prisoner, she was set free. And for years, Mary did what she was told. She was working as a laundress, but that's the lowest paying job for a domestic servant. After a few years, Mary disappeared. The health department admitted that they didn't know what became of her. Then in 1915, there was a significant typhoid outbreak at the Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City. 25 people were infected and two died. Again, George Soper was called in to investigate. He discovered there had been a cook at the hospital named Mary Brown. As a joke, the other women at the hospital were calling her Typhoid Mary. When Soper looked at her handwriting, he realized that this woman was, in fact, the real Typhoid Mary. 
She had been cooking for doctors, nurses, and patients, mothers and children. They tracked Mary to a house in Queens, New York, and when they went in to arrest her, she put up no struggle. It was as if she knew she was defeated, that the game was over. She quietly was taken back to the small home on North Brother Island, never putting up a struggle or saying a thing. Many have wondered over the years just what went through her mind when she returned to cooking. Was it that she just didn't believe she was a carrier? Or was it out of desperation, the need for money? Maybe it was out of defiance, an I'll show you what I can do type of thing, but who knows? An investigation over her few previous years revealed that wherever she went, typhoid followed. And there was the pattern that, even before her first arrest, that she always seemed to move on to another job as soon as a typhoid infection began. And after this arrest, there was no support from the public. Those that had supported Mary now felt betrayed. She went from victim to villain. She began her second stay on the island on March 27, 1915, and it would be her home until her death on November 11, 1938. But this stay was a little different. By this time, people had begun to understand the illness a little better, and Mary was treated with a bit more understanding. There were even times where she was permitted to leave the island and go to Manhattan for the day. She always returned on schedule. She became a minor celebrity and occasionally was interviewed by the media. Later, she was allowed to work as a technician in the island's laboratory washing bottles. She even made a friend or two. And although she was a model patient, or prisoner depending on how you look at it, they say she was never truly happy. Six years before her death, she suffered a stroke, leaving her partially paralyzed. It was at the age of 69 that she died of pneumonia after spending 23 years on the island. Mary Mellon, who had been known to the public as Typhoid Mary, was cremated, her ashes being buried at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. No one's quite sure how many people she affected. Since the disease is highly contagious, some of those she passed it on to probably passed it on to others. Some have estimated that she may have caused over 50 fatalities. Miss Mary Mallon? I'm Mary Mallon. Miss Mallon, my name is Dr. George Soper. I have been looking for you for quite a while. I was hired to track you down. To track me down? Yes, Miss Mallon. <laughs> it appears that you are the unwitting cause of the typhoid fever outbreak at Oyster Bay last Are you mad? It is imperative that I get specimens from you of urine, feces, and blood to confirm my suspicion. I've never been sick a day in my life. I've never had typhoid. Miss Mallon, you contain within your body typhoid fever germs. When you visit the toilet, these germs get on your fingers. You then transmit these germs to the food. Are you suggesting that I don't wash my hands? Nope. Before God and in the eyes of decent men, my name is Mary Mallon, and I have lived a decent and upright life. Soper did not mention the families where I have worked where there was no typhoid. He did not see fits to mention the family I always lived with in the Bronx when I was out of work, and where I shared a room with the children without giving them typhoid. A little bit before I go, what this story is really about, I guess is that, is it justified to take away a person's personal liberties when the safety of the public is at stake? Even today we are seeing protests by people who don't believe the government has the right to tell us to stay home. I don't know if they have that right or not. I'm not that smart. All I know is it seems to be the right thing to do. 
You know, at the time of Mary's second capture, when she was finally put in the island for keeps, there had been many people who were found to be carriers. Mary was the only one locked away. That's because the others understood that if you're a carrier, you should stay away from food preparation and your hands should be washed thoroughly after going to the bathroom. That was Mary's problem. She kept cooking. But when you look at it, cooking was her life. And maybe she just couldn't understand how a healthy person can make others sick. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link on the Coffee with Jeff website. If you'd like to help with the costs of producing this show, you can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. And if you think about it, leave a review on whatever social platform you find this show and tell your friends about it. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Your story ideas are always welcome. I want to thank today's producer, Betsy Batter, for her generous contribution. To my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those who post this on social media. Take care, be healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff I once knew a man who Used to drink his coffee black He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee or coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee or coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Thank you.
Sozinho 